You are now tuned in to the AddictedToSuccess.com podcast, where geniuses, entrepreneurs, and next-level game-changers share their juicy little secrets on achieving massive success. This is the advice you wish you heard years ago. Be prepared and take note as we expose the realness and the raw of what it takes to be successful on AddictedToSuccess.com. Now, before we get into this episode, I just wanted to share with you a gift from our sponsors, Organifi. And if you head over to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and type in the code SUCCESS, whenever you purchase an order, you get a 20% discount on any of their products. You know, I've been using the green juice from Organifi for a couple weeks now, and I can absolutely say this one here is a game changer. This is a superfood powder that saves me the time from having to mix five or six uh, different containers of superfood. It's just all there in the packet for me, and I take it every single day, and I feel absolutely amazing. I have that mental clarity I feel a hell of a lot healthier and I get this burst of energy that can only come from a natural substance. And so I speak highly of Organifi and its benefits and I know that there are a number of people out there right now that would love to operate at optimal levels. So if you're looking for something that is not only nutritious but also delicious, then jump on to Organifi, head over to Organifi.com Use a discount code. They've got a number of awesome products right there. I also take the probiotics and the turmeric as well. And I just feel so on point with this awesome line of products. So make sure you head over there. Thank you for checking out this sponsor ad. Let's get into this interview. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. Today, I am here with Stephen Kotler, who is a New York Times bestselling, multiple New York Times bestselling author. Uh, he has written books such as Abundance, uh, Bold with Peter Diamandis, The Rise of Superman, and his new book, no doubt will sell just as well because he's an amazing author, is Stealing Fire along with Jamie Wheeler. Stephen, welcome back because you were here on one of the other episodes, I think it was about a year and a half ago, so I'm really excited to, to go into some more detail with you on tapping into flow states and brain chemistry and all sorts of crazy stuff, man. So, so welcome back to the Addicted to Success podcast. Joel, it's great to be with you. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. So let's talk about Stealing Fire. I, uh-huh. I, I got a copy of the book and I, I skimmed through it, to be honest. I skimmed through it. And the parts that really excited me was uh, I'm very familiar with Jason Silva, who's one of your good friends. And I love how he, he had his anxiety. He, had, he was in a lot of stress. And the way that he found he could get around that was by tapping into flow. Right, and you see how well he performs. You you don't only work with people like Jason Silva, but you also work with the Navy SEALs and extreme athletes. So tell us, what has been the most fascinating and exciting thing that you've tapped into in the last six months? The most exciting thing I've tapped into in the past, you know, three or four years is kind of the, the revolution at the heart of stealing fire, right? Um, that to me is the most astounding thing. I and mean, it's a $4 trillion underground revolution that's happening right now. It's people hacking states of consciousness, flow being one of them you mentioned, um, to massively up-level performance. Right? Um, the reason I'm so excited right now is, A, it's the result of you know four years of research that myself and Jamie Wheel put into this. And you know it sort of emerged out of our work on flow states, 
which is kind of one non-ordinary state of consciousness with like a 150-year track record of helping people optimize performance. Um, and the science of that, when we kind of decoded the science, became a Rosetta Stone that started to unlock all these other non-ordinary states of consciousness as well. And we started to realize that all these very disparate groups of people we would never link together. You mentioned the, the Navy SEALs. Wall Street traders zapping their brains with electrodes to alter their consciousness, you know, before decision making. The Dave Asprey biohacking, neurohacking crowd, um, the like rise and continued impact of transformational festivals like Burning Man, soccer moms with yoga practices. This list obviously goes on and on and on. And it seems like these are crazy disparate groups of people. And when we started looking at this, that's what we thought we were looking at. But Understanding what's going on under the hood, um, we started to see they're all doing the very same thing. They're all trying to change the channel on normal waking state consciousness to up-level performance. And the fact that the fact that this was going on at all was shocking to us, right? Like the very we're we're out there, we we promote flow. But we're essentially talking about an altered state of consciousness, and we're doing it on Fortune 500 companies and on Wall Street and everything else. It's a little strange, but everywhere we go, people are coming up to us afterwards and saying, oh yeah, this flow stuff is amazing. We'll absolutely incorporate that in our life. But what about the fact that the whole team is going on silent Vipassana meditation retreats or exploring tantric sexual practices or microdose? We met teams of engineers at Fortune 100 companies who are secretly microdosing with LSD on a regular basis to up-level creativity. Everywhere we went, people were doing really crazy things to alter their consciousness and enhance performance. And that's what I mean. What I'm most excited about is kind of the opportunity to this un unlocks and just how big it is. You know what I mean? And I don't, I think what's, what's unique about Stealing Fire is hopefully all these different groups of people are going to, you know, read it and realize that, hey, wait a minute, there's a bigger framework here. There's something else going on. And, you know, if I can really tap into that, the possibilities get interesting quickly. Mm, beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, non-ordinary states of consciousness? Sure. That's, That's it. Yeah, I mean, non-ordinary states of consciousness are states like meditative, contemplative states, mystical states, psychedelic states, flow states, the state of awe. The easiest way to think about them is we have we live in what's called 21st century normal, which is essentially tired, wired, and chronically stressed. And it's got a neurobiological signature, right? What we see, if you look under the hoods of most of us living in the world today, is a lot of hyperactivity in the prefrontal cortex, so the part of the brain that's right behind your forehead. And this is the part of the brain that governs most of your higher cognitive functions, your sense of morality, your sense of will, your sense of self is created there. We also see brain waves in the beta range. It's a fast-moving wave. It's where our brains are right now to have this conversation. And we see a kind of chronic drip of stress hormones like cortisol and norepinephrine. So if you look under the hood of all these disparate states that I've just sort of described, it's, it seems like a, a crazy wild lot, right? Like what does speaking in tongues have to do with flow, have to do with meditation, right? Very disparate lot, but under the hood, we see that they all alter consciousness. They kick us out of 21st century normal, and they all do it in roughly the same way. So what, instead of hyperactivity in the prefrontal cortex, 
the prefrontal cortex gets very quiet, it quiets down. So one of the things that happens in these altered states is our sense of self, which is created in the prefrontal cortex, disappears. And when your sense of self disappears, that inner critic goes with it. So that nagging, always on defeatist voice in your head, you're too fat, too skinny, never going to get into good school, blah, 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 shuts up the very first time, right? So we experience this liberation, this freedom. Simultaneously, brain waves, they move out of agitated beta and they move into more meditative frequencies and open frequencies like alpha and theta, right? Where we have access to kind of much greater creativity, much deeper senses of calm and peace. And instead of the stress hormones, those flush out of our system and they're replaced by some combination of a bunch of feel-good performance enhancing chemicals like serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine, and endorphins, yeah. right? So non-ordinary states at a technical level, right, are these states of consciousness that produce this kind of shift in the brain. And this shift has four kind of, because it's similar neurobiology, even though these states sound really wildly disparate, they make us feel the same way. And there's four kind of signature feelings. One, we talked about selflessness, right? We also get timelessness. So time, turns out, is also calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. And as parts of it start to shut down, right, as we move into these non-ordinary states, we can no longer perform that calculation. So we can't separate past from present from future. We're plunged into what researchers call the deep now. Big deal. One of the main reasons is most of our fears are not present tense, right? We're either afraid of things that could go wrong in the future or things that went wrong in the past that we really want to avoid uh, repeating. We spend very little time completely focused in the present tense, right? In the right here, right now. And yet that's where all of our power lies. So you get a sense of timelessness in these states and it really drives us into the present tense, really has a big effect on us. You also get a sense of effortlessness, right? So instead of the normal striving, the toil and trouble of daily life, motivation gets goes through the roof. This happens because all those neurochemicals I mentioned before are pleasure drugs. They're some of the most pleasurable drugs the brain can produce, right? And these states seem to be the only time we get these combinations at once. And as a result, motivation goes through the roof. We feel like we're being propelled by a force that's greater than ourselves, right? And when you get timelessness, selflessness, and richness, you get a fourth category, which is the really big deal, or the selflessness and effortlessness, you get richness, which is short for information richness. In these states, all of the brain's kind of data processing mechanisms go through the roof. We trade conscious processing for the adaptive unconscious. That's a big deal. Conscious processing is, move, thought moves about 100 to 150 miles an hour, and your conscious mind, depending on whose calculation you like, can hold roughly 120 bits of information at once, and you're using 60 bits just to listen to me talk. So two people start talking, you're sort of tapped out, right? Mm. The adaptive unconscious, by the way, as we move into these states, and the, all this stuff turns off, the subconscious turns on. Subconscious can process 400 billion bits of information a second, and at speeds of 100,000 miles per hour. So it's a massive up-leveling and the amount of information we get access to, which is why in these states of consciousness, you know, William James, way back at the turn of the century, called them states of revelatory illumination, right? We feel, you know, 
for for years we thought you know the muses are talking to us it's divine inspiration it couldn't actually be produced in our brain because the level of inspiration information and insight we get and what we which we can use for creative problem solving just goes through the roof yeah excited so that's the new levels of inspiration if you can tap into that you can bring forth content that you've never been able to bring forth before and i know i know exactly what you're talking about because it's like when i get up on stage i went through a early on when I, I i remember delivering my first speech in front of like 360 people and i hated every second of it and the reason why i hated every second of it is because i practiced my speech probably about 80 times word for word trying to memorize it and i remember recording it in audio and listening to it at the gym for like weeks leading up to it got up used my slideshows as a crutch and kept looking over at my slides and i was so nervous i came out i'm like i don't know if i'm ever going to do that again now I speak 10, 12, 15 times a year and I love it. And it's because now I don't even have, like I hate prep structure. I hate slides. If I have to show visuals, I will, but I will get up and be even more comfortable by having nothing that I have to memorize and just letting myself pull it out. And I feel those states of flow where I'm like up there and I'm just saying things I'm like, where the thing is myself, where the hell did you get that from? <laughs> Creating new concepts on the spot. And it's like, I want more of that. I will, so my greatest, oh my God, what the hell happened story, yeah. my third book is a book called Small, A Small Furry Prayer. Yeah. It's about 350 pages long. And I had written, I finished it, turned it in, the editors came back to me and they said, okay, we like the first 100 pages and we need you to rewrite everything after that. It's just not good. And I said, okay, that's heavy. This was happened in April. I say, yes, I'm going to do this. And May comes. I've never had writer's block in my life. And I've you know, got the first 100 pages tuned. And I get to about page 110. And I get stuck. And that's May. And then it's June. And by July, I'm, I mean, I'm mad. I'm crazy. I'm out of my mind. Yeah. August comes and goes. And at the, I think it's the 30th of August. I still haven't written a word past page 110. I don't know what I'm going to do. The book is due in October. I'm totally screwed. And a friend of mine calls me up and says, hey, man, they're running the lifts at Parito Mountain for downhill mountain biking. You ever gone downhill mountain biking? It's like, absolutely not. Let's do this. I go to the thrift store and I buy like used hockey pads and whatever I could like put on to like for downhill mountain biking. I bring my cross country bike. And <clears throat> the first run, I actually can't even believe, you know, that I'm going to live. The second run, I can't actually believe a bicycle can do this. By the third run, I realize I'm so deep in flow and so addicted to the sport, I'm about to drop $10,000 on new equipment that I really, <laughs> money I didn't have, right? But like, it was that, it dropped me into flow and I, I went home and I was like, maybe I'll try riding. Who knows? And I sat down and for the next two weeks, I essentially wrote nonstop. I would go to sleep and I'd wake back up. I was in a nonstop flow state. I wrote 200 pages in two weeks, finished the book just in time. Didn't have time to edit it, which I, you know, I edit my stuff 50, 60, 70. I'm, I'm nuts about how often I edit my stuff. Didn't have time to edit any of it, turned it in. Editor calls me up like two weeks later or, or I get her notes back like two weeks later. They've got all kinds of corrections in the first 110 pages. The part that I had rewritten before and have worked on again and again and again, there is not a note 
from page 110 to the end. Of the, I mean, there's nothing. They changed nothing wow. in the 200 words. The book ended up being a bestseller. It was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and I don't know who the fuck wrote it. I, have no, <laughs> I don't have a clue. Couldn't do it again. Don't know where it came from. Like, what was that? And, yeah. you know, I was always glad to have the experience because you hear these stories about, like, Jack Kerouac taking speed and writing on the road on a roll of toilet paper for two weeks straight, and you're like, that doesn't happen in the real world. Like, that never, like, those experiences don't happen. That's a fable. Turns out I got lucky and I got one of those. I don't think it's ever going to happen again. I think I'm going to have to struggle for every other sentence for the rest of my life. But <laughs> weeks, I, I had that, like, the full experience of divine inspiration that comes in one of these states. And it was so deep and so powerful that I really, I have no idea who wrote the second half of that book. That's insane, man. Absolutely insane. You know what? Another experience I had, thanks for sharing that. That's, that really gives us insight on how it works. Uh, I had an experience where I was speaking with uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza, right? He's this neuroscientist guy. He's sure. incredible. And we're talking about flow as well. And I said, one time I was watching a, a Rajon Rondo playing in a Boston Celtics, like on, on video. It was like his highlight clips before I went to a basketball game. And then when I went and played basketball, it was so insane. I think I scored like 36 points that game. And it was like every shot I put up, like I was messing with it, shooting outside of the three, like back from the line. I was still getting them in. It just like seemed like every layup I put up went in. And it was just like the ring was like this huge. It was massive to me. Like it was just boom, 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 boom. The whole game, the whole game. I couldn't believe it. I Then when I finished, I had the biggest crash. Like that night I was like, stuff, man, my body had been so pushed. I woke up the next day, I felt like I had a hangover. It was insane. Two things, right? Two great things to bounce off of that. One, you asked me what, what, what I'm excited about. And yeah. what I'm really excited about is we just had this crazy conversation, three stories about what these states of consciousness can do for performance, right? Yeah. And the examples are insane. What's really exciting to me is right now, right? For reasons that we can get to, but there are four forces that are driving this stuff forward. We are getting so much better at creating these states on demand, tuning them with increasing precision, taking them to scale so everybody gets access to them. And this is where we're going to get to the second half, the hangover, using them more safely. And the point, for example, what do we know about flow, for example? All the neurochemicals that show up in flow or any of these non-ordinary states they're expensive for the brain to produce, right? These are high energy states and you need, for example, serotonin. You need certain chemicals, you need sunlight, you need B vitamins, you exhaust your brain's supply, right? People who do MDMA, right, which boosts, you know, releases all the serotonin into their brain, they are hung over for a couple days afterwards and they're depressed and there's nothing they can do about it because there's no more neurochemistry. They're living, right? they're living on bananas for the rest of the week. <laughs> Exactly. Same thing happens with these states, right? So now we are starting to understand that and we're starting to say, hey, wait a minute, right? You can have these big states, but they're expensive and they need to be followed by a recovery period. One of the first things, you know, we do at the Flow Genome Project when we work with organizations is we put people on sleep monitors. We make sure they're getting eight hours of sleep a night and we really stress that after you have these huge peaks, you have to shut it down. Because if you don't, right, you are going to. My bad. <laughs> Felix, really, I'm really getting something from you today, Joel. <laughs> For music. 
Um, <laughs> so he's speaking to me. So um, there's a you know there's a, there, there's a, there's a dasa. There's a way to you know the and the other thing is these states are sticky, right? This is not the first time in history we've had a revolution in non-ordinary states of consciousness, right? This is, goes on all the time. Most of the time, it goes horribly wrong, right? There's hedonism gets the best of us, and we tend to blow ourselves up. Ken Kesey sneaks LSD out of a research lab in, Stamp in Stanford. All kinds of tie-dyed hell breaks loose. Mm. Sexual revolution in the 70s. They figure out that, hey, wow, sexual techniques can also alter consciousness and it's going to lead to liberation. And what does it lead to? Spiking rates of marital dis dissatisfaction and divorce. Rave culture of the 90s. It's peace, love, and happiness. And suddenly it's ER visits and tabloid father. Mm. What, what I think, because of advances, I, I talked about those four forces for a second. They're psychology, neurobiology, pharmacology, and technology, right? And because of the advances in these fields, and I think all of them have become information scientists, scientists, so they're starting to you know, jump on the back of Moore's law and accelerate exponentially. So what's happening now is only going to massively increase as we move forward. Um, these forces, first of all, they allow us to mix, mix and match in a way that's much safer than ever before. Um, and, you know, use multiple techniques. That in itself is a huge breakthrough. Um, but hopefully, you know, with the better information, we can sort of carve a middle path, right? Because we bounce back and forth between like the counterculture explodes and the state jumps up and says, oh, wait a minute, we got we to gotta stop this. This is getting crazy. And then the counterculture explodes and we go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And we don't really get far that far. The great example of this is... Before psychedelic research got shut down in America, right, over a thousand studies had been done. That's an incredible amount of studies on one topic. And we have over the past 10 years now that it's been restarted, it's not like we've redone done all this really new cutting edge research. We didn't trust the hippies because they blew it up and we've redone every one of those studies. It's only sort of maybe now, literally, and not even in this country, more in Europe and Switzerland, places like that where the research is a little farther ahead, are people starting to ask different, more interesting questions, right? And, you know, Robin Carter Harris, where he gave us the first visualization of LSD in the brain a couple of years ago, um, that was brand new. Nobody had seen what that looked like, right? And, you know, and it turns out the crazy thing is, I'm going to walk you through the neurobiology, but in talking to uh, Robin about this, he's like, you know, what we discovered is that that old hippie idea of mind expansion, when you actually look at what's going on in the brain, when you take these psychedelic drugs, that's exactly what we see. We're seeing the mind expand. We're seeing far-flung connections between regions of the brain that never talk to each other suddenly are having conversations and forming alliances and laying down new pathways and opening up literally new neurological possibilities. Um, that's pretty neat. That was new. But mostly everything else, we're redoing the same stuff because it went so horribly wrong. So I'm hoping this time right, we can steer this middle path and maybe not blow ourselves up along the way. Hmm. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Because like I have this conversation quite often. <clears throat> it's not what I'm interested in, when it, like to take myself. But I have friends that do. Uh, and... And, you know, I, I'm not judgmental of it at all because I don't want to judge anything I haven't even tried. 
but it's really interesting because there's a part of me also that's like if i was to try something like that i'd be worrying about what it would do in the long term like the long-term effects on the brain i don't know if i'm because i feel like everything kind of comes at a cost you gotta weigh it up and go is it worth it or not uh, what kind of research have you done on this and and what do you see when it comes to like lsd and well, mushrooms and all sorts because i'm interested in, in hearing so pretty much what we know about the psychedelics not i'm not really talking about ecstasy mdma which is an empathedelic it's a slightly different compound but what we know about the psychedelics is as a general rule they're completely safe you can have a very bad trip it can rock you psychologically to your core it, you can have emotional scarring on the back end but what we've seen over time is that the biggest danger is if you are schizophrenic and if you're going to have that break with reality at any point in the future, the use of psychedelics can, and marijuana also can accelerate it, can bring it on faster. But as far as anything else long term, we haven't seen it. MDMA, um, you have a purity issue. Um, right. If you can get really pure MDMA, it's still an amphetamine. So if you have heart problems, things along those lines, you know, there are mild concerns there. But the, here's let, let, but here's what's interesting. Right. You said, hey, this is not for me. I don't want to take a psychedelic. That's not the route I want to go. So when I said we had options, let me give you an example. And so one of the things we've known for a very, very long time is that um non-ordinary states of consciousness really have an impact on well-being. They really have an impact on overall life satisfaction. And sort of, I think the greatest test case in the wild for this is studies on PTSD, which has got to be, you know, the most, the biggest disturbance in the force you can think of, mm -hmm. right? In America, it's pretty much at, a, at an epidemic level, right? One out of 10 Americans has PTSD. It's 25 million Americans at once. 27% of all suicides in America's suicide rate for everybody ages 10 to 78 are, are peaking right now. They're 30 years highs um, and still climbing. And like, it's crazy what's going on. Um, and so there were three interesting studies done on PTSD and non-ordinary states over the past few years. So the first one was done by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Research my good friend Rick Doblin running that show, and a psychologist named Michael Mitherhall. And they used MDMA therapy, which is the application of the psychedelic MDMA and talk therapy. And uh, MDMA, if you're not familiar with it, right, it's an empathedelic, it expands openness and empathy. That's what it does. And they were working with victims of child abuse, sexual abuse, and war trauma uh, with veterans from both Iraq and Afghanistan. And they found one to three sessions of psychedelic therapy was enough to significantly decrease or completely remove symptoms of PTSD. That's a very powerful, powerful result. And it seems like the changes last. It's been four years since this, the first study was run, right? They've and, um, more than four years, and the, they're holding up. So much so that the FDA here in America... Uh, MDMA as a treatment for PTSD is now moving into phase three trials. So that's the large scale ones right before it becomes a medicine prescribed by a doctor. And the FDA has already greenlit studies into uh, MDMA for those lesser traumas of anxiety and depression. 
but still you have to you know right now you have to enter yourself in a you know into a government study or take a you know an illegal substance that's an amphetamine there's some risk they redid that study a little while later at uh, a UCLA uh, occupational therapist named Carly Rogers ran essentially the same study, but she swapped out MDMA and replaced it with surfing as a trigger for flow states. So she coupled surfing with talk therapy and they put over a thousand vets with PTSD through this program. Five weeks of surfing and talk therapy, significant decrease or totally cure PTSD. Wow. Last year, they redid that same study with meditation. They used TM, so a mantra-based meditation, focus meditation, and they found that four weeks of daily meditation is enough to have produced the same result. Wow. And like pull people off meds, and interestingly in the meditation study, they found that um, of the people in the control group, 40% of them you know, while the other people were meditating, they were coming off their meds. Forty percent of the people in the control group who weren't meditating were on SSRIs had to increase their medication during the study. Mm. But so you have, you know, PTSD. You have three different ways to access a non-ordinary state, right? And pretty similar results. And the real difference is time and risk, right? Mm. How much time do you have to wait for a result? Right. If you have the five weeks, six weeks, and you want to go in that direction, maybe surfing is right for you. But if you're having night, you know, I talked to an army ranger who took part in that first MDMA study. He had been blown up in Iraq. His back, his neck, he was he was destroyed, and he had daily nightmares. His life was gone. Um, I believe his wife has left him. It was a, it was a he was in bad shape, and you know had never really done drugs. And signed up for this study as a, like a last-ditch attempt at sanity, and literally, he was fine after one session. He said it was the most amazing thing. The nightmares disappeared. He felt extroverted and alive for the very first time since getting blown up. And you know, flat out said MDMA gave me my life back. He called it a sacred molecule. Mm. Well, that's profound. But again, like, and you wanted that guy to get there quickly, but it's a little bit of risk. Yeah. Surfing. A little less risk. You still have to paddle into the ocean on a board, right? Yeah. As you know, things can go wrong. Unless, got- unless you're in Australia. If you're in Western Australia where I am right now, you might get taken by a great white shark. <laughs> As I said, there's some risks. And then there's meditation, which, you know, not entirely. Usually, you know, in mindfulness-based stress reduction, you can pretty much say that's very safe. But if you're going for a, you know, go for a two-week silent Vipassana meditation retreat, it can mess with your head. Yeah, that that I can say for sure. And I, you know, I have to be honest. Like, I come to Steel and Fire. You know, my whole life is sort of woven into this book, right? I I started out as a seeker. You know, my or before long before I was a science writer, long before I was working on flow, tried out ashram, ashrams, monasteries, did lots of psychedelics, became a Reiki master. I don't even know what that means, and I became right. Like I did all those things, and what I can tell you is after you know. Years and years and years and years of searching, I was hunting for something that felt like a mystical, magical experience, something that really felt like a spiritual experience that was deeply meaningful, and it never really happened. And then when I started surfing, when I started, you know, I get mine through action sports or writing. 
Yeah. That's my tap. Those are the doors that are most open to me. I've tried every other door. And I'm st- by the way, I've done yoga for 25 years. I still do yoga. I've had a 15-year meditation practice. I still do it. I, you know, at one point, just to make sure I was doing it right, I had my brain scanned in an fMRI scanner by guys who you know do research on monks just to find out, like, am I doing this right? And they were like, yeah, you're, you're, you're doing it right. It's, <laughs> it calms me down. It makes me happier. It's got that low 10% happier effect, but it doesn't, I don't talk to Norse gods. I don't like, that stuff doesn't happen to me that direction. Yeah. Oh man, I love that you're sharing all this. This is amazing. Uh, I, one of my friends is a neuroscientist. He said to me, he said, the brain doesn't just want to survive. It wants to thrive. So he's like, you've got to put it in, in it's like, you've got to practice the habits and be in the environments that allow it to thrive, which is what you're talking about. It's like, you know, surfing, meditation. It's, these are all the habits we can practice. We have, you know, entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening to this right now, like looking for what are the things that I can start implementing to heighten this, right? Um, I was speaking with one of my friends a good couple months ago, and he said to me that he was feeling depressed. He said, I'm depressed. And I asked him, are you sure? He said, yeah. And I go, okay, that's pretty serious. So like, what are you, what are you thinking? He said, I'm thinking of going on antidepressants. And I asked him, well, have you tried like anything that's like outside of having to take, have you tried anything yet? And he's like, what do you mean? I said, do you exercise? Because this is the one thing I kind of noticed with a lot of people that are in that space. There's, you know, there's the exceptions, but a lot of them aren't usually exercising. They're not meditating or anything like that. So I, I put him through a, a, a program that I knew. I connected him with one of my friends. He started exercising. Uh, and, and also I got him to do what you mentioned before, transcendental meditation. I, I connected him with a teacher. And where he went, never had antidepressants. He's, he's golden. He's probably happier than most people I know now. I think the data is pretty overwhelmingly clear that the combination of robust exercise, a daily mindfulness practice, respiration practice, um, and gratitude lists. And the gratitude lists aren't, like, people have a really weird reaction when you say, you gotta make, you know, a gratitude list. And positive psychologists, they want it to be three things you're grateful for, and you write a little bit about, um, I like to do 10. The reason you're doing that, like what that's about, all the information that comes into your brain, the first place it goes is your amygdala. It goes to your danger direct detective, right? We pick up nine negative things for every one positive thing, and we weight them totally differently, right? For every you know positive, if, if, for every negative thing that comes in, if you want to unweight it and tilt it, you need six positive events to pick you back up. Now, all this stuff coming in, you're releasing stress hormones, you're panicking, right? It's you know, it's essentially the fight or flight response was meant for really brief periods of time when we fight the saber-toothed tiger. But century normal is on all the time, right? And the problem with it is, the reason gratitude matters is when you focus on things that you're grateful for that are already there, it tips the balance. You start letting in, literally noticing more positive things in your life. You, your brain starts taking in different information. It's sort of, you know, sort of like the same thing that happens in a non-ordinary state of consciousness on a very different level. You're just shifting the frame, and it gives you much more access to positive things. Those three things deployed, you know, judiciously over a month or regularly over a month, 
you know, the, the data is pretty clear coming out of positive psychology. It's going to make a world of difference. I, I you know, I, I applaud what you did. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, and I believe that too. I practice gratitude every day. It's one of those things that you say it and people are like, eh. it's, it's, it seems so overplayed. And I mean, there's a reason because it actually really works. Instead of your brain going to the default or the negative, you're training your brain to go to the positive. Yep. Right, to be more optimistic. Yeah. Love it. Love it, Stephen. So Stephen, where can we get this book? Stealing Fire. Where is it? So I'll go to stealingfirebook.com. That's the, that's the best place to start for more information. We're running a pre-sale campaign because it doesn't come out until February 21st. We're giving away really amazing, cool, fun things. So go check that out. Um, and, you know, flow genome, if, you, if, you, if you're asking yourself, hey, what the hell do I do next, right? This stuff sounds project website, flowgenomeproject.com. There's a free flow profile. It's tritology. It says you're this kind of person. You're likely to find the most flow in these directions. So it'll tell you where to start looking. It'll walk, you know, it's a first step on a much longer path, but it's a good first step. Um, and those things are available. And if you want to take it a step farther, you go to stephencotler.com, sign up for my email newsletter. Um, this was not supposed to be an infomercial. It's turned into one. But if you sign up for my email newsletter, there are 17 triggers that we know that produce flow, preconditions that lead to more flow, and you'll get a free PDF that breaks those things down. So if you want to get busy, there's tools for you. Love it. I'm going to do it myself after this. Absolutely love the, it. Oh? The assessment. I've taken it? Oh, wow. It's, yeah. um, it's a funny thing about, like, you know, we talk about the force, psychology as a force in the book, right? One of the things that's happening is psychology is becoming a big data science, and the flow profile, which we put up a couple years ago, it's become one of the largest studies anybody's ever run in optimal psychology. 50,000 people have taken it at this point, which is, so we're getting access to data sets psychologically that we've never had before, which is astounding. Um, and the flow profile, by the way, quick, just a quick side note, um, we really thought when we started this work, probably the first time I talked to you, I, you know, I would have, I would have said this, we thought the people who were best at flow were artists and athletes. And we thought that's where the most flow was coming from. And according to our study, like 47% of our study group finds the most flow. They fall into what's called the deep thinker category, doing contemplative and creative work. You know, basically like, you know, being an architect, being an engineer, being a writer, being a podcast, you know, take your pick. What most of us do in our daily lives, that's actually where the most flow shows up, which was shocking to us, totally turned us around. I believe it. I believe it because it's demanding more from yourself, like to actually go deeper and to think, right? You're using parts of your brain that you don't use on a surface level. Do you, do you feel, I just want to ask you this because I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm trying to understand it for myself too. There's a lot more power in your unconscious mind, right? And the unconscious. And so like practicing these habits where you can tap more into that would be more beneficial for entrepreneurs that are listening to this right now. Am I correct in saying that? So, yes and no. Okay. The, yes. I mean, the, the unconscious is incredibly, incredibly powerful. It's an astounding tool. And in a second, um, I'll take, teach you how to program it so you can really use it. Yeah. Um, give you something totally useful that it'll blow your mind. But, you know, read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, right? Yeah. There is, there is a, system one, which is our unconscious, it's got a lot going for it, correctly tuned, but that's also where the amygdala is. That's where the danger detector is, right? Like that's 
it's there's a lot of stuff going on under the surface. A lot of it's really beneficial. And if you can work with it, if you can work with the system, right, and understand what's going on in, you know, parts of your brain that are danger detectors and those sorts of things, there's a lot of power there. But you can't just say all good or all bad. Daniel Kahneman would argue that as a general rule, it's not so good, right? We make there's all kinds of, you know, the unconscious can make very fast decisions and, and apply cognitive biases, right? Information prognosing, shortcuts that don't always work. So there are times to make slow decisions. Like, and it's interesting because flow, before you move into flow, your prefrontal cortex is hyperactive. You're really using your conscious mind, then you're turning it off. But here, so here's a here's a here's a phenomenal way to kind of start working with your with your subconscious um, in a useful way and I do this all the time and I'll tell you um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the method and then I'll tell you how I apply it so the method is you can ask your subconscious to solve problems for you it is a giant pattern recognition system and it is much more powerful than the conscious mind and it will solve problems for you you can absolutely program it and the easiest way to do it is you have to write by hand, don't type, seems to be, there's a link between language and the brain, there seems to be a link between writing and the brain, so writing in longhand, but write a question. If you, I like to do this at the end of my writing session for the morning. So I finished my morning writing session and I want to start tomorrow really fired up, right? So I will, and maybe I don't know where the next chapter starts, so I, my question can be as vague as it needs to be, and as specific as possible. So I'll be like, I want to start chapter two and I want it to be exciting and sexy and maybe it's going to involve elephants and jugglers and mathematicians, some kind of story, and right? Like as specific as you want it to be, but as vague as you need it to be. Just write out the question. Go do something. You know, in the beginning, it, you want to go do something low grade and physical next. Mm. So long walk is very useful. You, longer than 20, 25 minutes. You want your prefrontal cortex to quiet down, that voice in the head to go away. Um, research done by my friend Lee Slodoff found that building model airplanes, model dinosaurs, whatever you want, really good. Gardening works really, really well. Um, working out works really, really well, but don't exhaust yourself. You don't want to burn yourself out completely. You just sort of want to shut down your brain for a bit. Um, in the beginning, as you're getting first to this you know, do that and maybe take a nap or, or, or get some sleep overnight and then come back to it the next next day. After you get better, you can shrink that down. And then just, you know, go through this refractory period. By the way, the only thing that doesn't work in that refractory period is television. It will actually, it, television will mess up this process. Um, so the next morning, just pick up your pen and start writing and do an uh, The answer to my question is, and just keep writing, no matter what, for 30, 40 seconds. Chances are, more often than not, you're going to start finding the answers to your questions. They tend to show up. This tends to work really, really well. Most people don't believe it at all until they start trying it. But, um, and I'm not the, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who deploy this. Josh Waitzkin, who wrote The Art of Learning, who I think is one of the most brilliant people in the world on high performance right now, um, he talks about it. He works a lot with a, a lot of really high end Wall Street finance guys. And he has them doing the same thing um, every time they take a break. So they'll have their morning session, then they'll ask themselves a question, and then they'll go to the gym, and they'll come back and answer. 
and then they'll work a little bit longer and they'll ask themselves a question. They'll go have lunch and you know whatever. And then and so as you get better at it, you can shrink those cycles and you can really use this throughout your day to help you problem solve. But you know the adaptive unconscious, which you know we sort of we tap into at a deeper level in non-ordinary states. We can just deploy it in our in our daily life, you know, this way, and it's really effective as a creative problem solving. What an amazing exercise. I love it. I love it. Yeah, so many people listening to this right now can start implementing this. I'm writing my book right now and I feel like I, I, I hear it because I'm having to get up and take breaks. It gets to the point where you're like, okay, the flow is like kind of slowing down and then you got to get up. Let it oscillate like that, right? Instead of just trying to go hard the whole time. I also, yeah, I, you, you know, I, for me, writing is a lot about state management, right? That's that, that's sort of what we're learning everywhere right now. That you know, the I think that one of the key lessons of the 21st century is a lot of the critical skills we want that we need, so-called 21st century skills, we can't get and we're lousy at because we're trying to train up skills, and what we need to be doing is training up states of mind, right? And that's a that's a that's a very different way of thinking about problems. But I'll give you just a really deeply personal example from my life. I get up really early every morning and I write. So 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. And I don't like to leave anything on the hill, on the table, on whatever. I will write till I'm exhausted and fallen down, right? And then I have to, then I leave my office and I go up to walk up to my house, which is, you know, um, I live on a farm, a small farm. So my, I go walk across my fields and I'm up at my house. And I have to interact with my wife, who's running our animal sanctuary at that time. And if I've totally burnt myself out, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out of flow. I'm out of all of it. I'm awful. So I have consciously stopped. And now, before I go up to the house, like I do my morning writing session, I ask my question, and I do something state changing. I that 15 minute meditation, three minute, you know, five minute box breathing. Um, box box breathing is really quick, right? I find that really or or breath of fire. Those things are really quick. If I can't get it. I'll do yoga, I'll like whatever, but I no longer like try to inflict myself on the world really at any level if you know if I don't have my states of consciousness managed properly. Yeah, yeah, awesome stuff. Yeah, I heard box breathing is really good. It's really good. I actually saw uh, Tony Robbins doing it, we were filming for a movie, and then he was in the, he was gonna go out to speak at this event. Uh, we were in Denver, and he was in the toilets waiting and like doing it, doing that breath of fire. So I think it's to get him into state. Yeah, breath of fire will really shift states. Box breathing is great because anytime, you know, it's a five-second inhale, five-second hold, five-second exhale, five-second hold. So when you hold your breath after exhaling all your breath, you panic. It's almost instant fight-or-flight response. Maybe not on a five-second side, but once you, you know, then you do six seconds and seven seconds. Usually around seven seconds is when people start to panic. Um, and what's cool about that is by focusing through the fighter, I mean, you're not going to die holding your breath for seven seconds, right? <laughs> by fo but by focusing through it, you're actually down-regulating the fight-or-flight response. So you're making yourself less reactive over time. So it's got a really profound effect. And interestingly, um, new research uh, that my friend Brian McKenzie uh, told me about 
um, and, and has worked on. She says, if you're combining box breathing and breath of fire, like an apnea practice box breathing with a breath of fire, he's seeing actual significant cardiovascular improvement. So oh, wow. breath of fire combined with this apnea practices, um, some of the Wim Hof stuff, it's, you know, is, is what he's doing, you know, there. Um, and besides heating you up, it seems to be actually improving your cardio. So on weeks that like, you know, I'm not getting, I'm traveling too much to get to the gym. You know what I mean? I am, I'll, I'll, I'll be hitting my pushups and my sit-ups in the hotel. And then I'm doing this cause I don't have time to go run. Yeah. 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 I can see how it would mimic that because even when you're like working out, you're like, like breathing faster. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, uh, Stephen. Well, you've, you've dropped nothing but value bombs and gems this whole conversation for a lot of people to take away. So thanks a million, man. I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. Now, we end every interview with this question. And the question is, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech to the world, what would your parting advice be? Well, before I give you that answer, first, let me just thank you for everything you do. It, 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 you know, it's really, you bring great people on, they share, you know, controversial, interesting, exciting, fun ideas, and you, you share it with the world, and it's a really important thing. So, so thank you thank very you. much for that. And, um, yeah, this is, okay, this is what popped into my head, and it's sort of like a flow genome logic cliche, because we say it a lot, but really, honest to God, don't die wondering. Don't die wondering is, 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 I think, you know, that's my 32nd, you know, uh, the only thing I know for sure, right. You, you get one shot of this life and you're going to spend one third of it asleep. So really, as far as I can tell, the only question that matters, right, is what the hell are you going to do with the rest of it? And so there's my 32nd speech. Don't die wondering. <laughs>